electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Bono and Eisen. Tonight on Fast, reaching for records, the S&P 500 once again falling short of a new all-time high. So what will it take to get us there? Traders will weigh in. Plus, we're watching the after-hours action in shares of Applied Materials and Baidu. Both stocks on the move after reporting results will break down the numbers. And later, we are closing out our series on the cannabis craze with a deep dive into Green Thumb. That stock soaring today on the back of blowout earnings. CEO Ben Kobler will join us exclusively. But we start off with a big developing story on Apple as that stock is a fresh all-time high. Epic Games is suing the tech giant after Apple removed its blockbuster video game Fortnite from the App Store. Epic blasting Apple in a new ad that parodies Apple's iconic Mac commercial from the 1980s. Take a look. Let's get more on this developing story. Julia Borston's got the details. Julia. Well, Melissa, Epic is taking legal action against Apple after Apple removed its game Fortnite from the App Store, filing suit to end what Epic calls Apple's anti-competitive restrictions on mobile device marketplaces, which is Referring to Apple's cut of revenue, Epic posting this video with the hashtag FreeFortnite. Now, this all started with Fortnite offering a 20% discount on its in-game purchases made when using Epic Direct Payments, circumventing App Store fees. Apple saying that Epic has benefited from the App Store ecosystem for a decade, and while it will make every effort to resolve the dispute, saying, quote, the fact that their business interests now lead them to push for a special arrangement does not change the fact that these guidelines create a level playing field for all developers and make the store safe for all users. Now, Epic says it isn't seeking monetary compensation, but says in its filing, quote, Epic is seeking injunctive relief to allow fair competition in these two key markets that directly affect hundreds of millions of consumers and tens of thousands, if not more, of third-party app developers. Now, Melissa, of course, this all comes just a few weeks after Tim Cook, Apple CEO, participated in those antitrust hearings on Capitol Hill. And Melissa, I just want to flag that we just got a, a note from Spotify, Spotify, which of course also distributes through the App Store, telling us they applaud Epic Games' decision to take a stand against Apple and shed further light on Apple's abuse of its dominant position. That from uh, Spotify's global head of communications there. So also uh, getting some support there from Spotify. Back over to you. All right, Julia. Thank you, Julia Borston. Uh, we heard about these lawsuits in the past of smaller uh, app developers suing Apple. It was a, a baby naming app, a basketball workout app. But when you take on the likes of a Fortnite, Dan, it sort of changes the magnitude of the potential impact of this. And of course, if this actually plays out in court, this is sort of the, the antitrust battle that Congress wanted to take on and that could be played out in the justice system instead. 
Yeah, it gives the Congress the opportunity to kind of litigate this thing through the courts in a different way than, than maybe they have the initiative to do right now. Um, you know, listen, this is a big one. Uh, you know, when you have Fortnite, when you have Spotify weighing in in, um, in their behalf for Epic Games, I mean, this is something that's not going to go away. The only way it goes away is through regulation or if Apple changes the way that they do business. And I think it shines some light on the fact that they are a massive, massive gatekeeper to um, any innovation that's going to come on to their platform through the iOS. So this is an issue that's going to stick around. I don't think the stock is going to trade poorly off of it. We can go back and think about when they were in litigation with Samsung. It seems like almost 10 years ago now. I don't think it really had a huge impact on the stock, even when those phones um, had certain bans about shipping, that sort of thing. So to me, I think this is a headline risk. It's the sort of thing that will probably get going in Europe a bit more than it'll get going here in the U.S. And Apple will likely have to make some compromises or they may be faced with some very large antitrust suits in the next few years. And Fortnite, of course, is big. $1.8 billion in revenue just last year. But think about think about uh, who Fortnite could band with, could side with. I mean, go back to Tencent. Tencent owns, what, 40 percent of Fortnite. Tencent yeah. majority owns Riot Games as well. Riot Games is going to put League of Legends on mobile sometime in the fall. So let's say these two get together because they got the same parent company, Tim, and you've got a juggernaut there fighting Apple. Yeah, and th th think about uh, for Tencent also the exposure they have on WeChat, which, you know, again, gets them back to kind of, you know, where, where at least the Chinese are, are, are going to complain. And Tencent has got a lot of exposure here. Tencent's been uh, uh, struggling over the last couple of days, was down big today. Um, so, yes, I, I think Tencent is the strongest, the most powerful gaming company in the world, period. And, and, and they own about 40 percent of Epic Games through a transaction back uh, seven or eight years ago. Uh, they bought 48% for around $330 million. Um, I think they are certainly the right person to have on your side for this. Uh, I think when you think about Apple and you think about where it is uh, in the cycle of this move, and you think about how much of that's been based upon services, uh, the, the, the math around the App Store and the impact to what that means for services revenue, it's massive. In terms of overall revenue, it, it's, uh, you know, eight to ten percent of Apple's overall uh, profitability. So it's it's a very big number, I think, in the big picture. But in the short run, I don't think this is about uh, anti-competitive. I, I think, you know, it, it, if anything, it means that these companies have to find another another avenue to to bring it. And I think this will create other other avenues for uh, and this may be what Apple will be most upset about is that they're forcing uh, other competitors. Right. I mean, Tim, you mentioned that eight to nine percent of profit. Um, coming from services, I, I agree. Short term, that's a small impact. But guy, in the long term, isn't that a big portion of the growth story? This notion that services is going to be the future. And so if you take away that part of the flywheel where, you know, Apple gets 30 percent right now, a 30 percent cut from all the apps on the app store, that could add up to be a lot. Yeah, and to your point, it, I think service revenue is now 22% of overall revenue, and that number's been trending in the right direction, and that's why Apple's, uh, the multiple continues to move in their favor. So, yes, but you know, th there's also a huge leap from, you know, one company saying, you know, taking on Apple to their entire ecosystem. And, and as Julia said, and as you know, I mean, these companies have benefited from being part of that Apple ecosystem, whether they acknowledge it or not, it, it's true. So... You know, they just want to get it cheaper, I guess. And if there are better places for them to be in cheaper places, I'm sure they will pursue it. To Tim's point, 
there are other places they can go. Apple does not have a monopoly here, despite the fact that people are trying to portray it. So I think there are reasons uh, to sell Apple here to be taking profits. I don't think this is one of them. I will point out, and we do it all the time, um, you know, there are a lot of people that say buy it and hold it and own it, and that's correct. At an all-time high, it's hard to argue with that. But, you know, remember in the fall of 2018, this was a stock making an all-time high of 220, and within a month and a half was trading 140, and as recently as seven or eight months ago made an all-time high of 325, and then basically cratered like everything else down to 220. So the stock does move to the downside as well from time to time. Right. Uh, I mean, Apple is sort of playing a, 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 it's a very difficult game, right? Because if they take a hard line on this and say, you know what, Epic, you can go elsewhere. I mean, it does risk saying no to a lot of the most popular apps out there that, that kids want, that people want on their phones. And those people might not buy an Apple phone the next upgrade cycle. So, Bonowin, in the context of the stock being at an all-time high, uh, is this a concern? I mean, I think those are two separate things. I mean, the fact that the stock is at an all-time high, sure, that's something to take into consideration. But I'm, I'm hesitant to extrapolate one particular customer of Apple and extrapolating that to, all, to its entire customer base. So, yes, while Epic Gaming is, is, a, is a large um, participant, Tencent, all those things, again, it is a large concentration. What we've seen is cyclicality and changes in those bases, and the constant that has remained over time has been Apple. Um, it's really tough to bet against them. If you look back at their earnings, granted, you know, what you and Guy said in terms of the service revenue contributing to, to multiple expansion, this is still a behemoth that is extremely profitable across verticals. I, I think this is definitely more of a headline risk, but I, I'm, again, hesitant to apply it um, in, in generalities here. I so guess no, I don't, I don't yeah. think it's a trading opportunity at the moment. I guess I put the two together in terms of the context of where the stock is, is because Obviously, if you, if you think the stock may be overvalued here, this may be the headline risk you want to you want to take some profits on, Dan. Yeah, you know, listen, I think these guys all make great points. I think Tim's point about WeChat is a huge one. If you think about China, I mean, listen, Guy just said that Apple doesn't have a monopoly. They have nearly 45% of the smartphone market here in the U.S. and much greater of the high-end smartphone market. Their market share in China is less, and they have a huge issue with WeChat because they compete with WeChat is basically just the layer, the app layer that could sit on a much cheaper phone in emerging markets um, like China. So to me, I, I think you have to put all this stuff together and say they could have an issue with WeChat um, in China, um, just, the, just a nationalistic sort of fervor, people staying away from Apple products. And then you could have an issue here if people, to your point, Mel, are not buying these products because they are not allowed to come through the iOS app store. That could be a huge issue. Um, so, you know, to me, I, listen, I think that Apple also faces the risk with the WeChat um, uh, TikTok deal, what if the Chinese say, hey, listen, yes. we are going to actually start re regulating your app store. So to me, I, I just think there's a lot of issues here with the stock at all-time highs. This stock has gained 20% since its earnings, over $300 billion in market cap in a little less than two weeks. That seems a little aggressive, in my opinion. It's a staggering number. Uh, let's talk more about Apple's record run, bringing a man who used to run the company. Joining us now is former Apple CEO John Scully. John, great to have you with us. Thanks, Melissa. Um, you're, you're a bull. <laughs> to, I mean, to pull it, put it delicately, I mean, you're an extreme bull here on Apple. But in terms of, of sort of these risks that we've been talking about at the top of the show, John, do any of these concern you? 
Well, I think it's been a great discussion, a lot of uh, really smart insight from, from your panel. Uh, what I would add to it, um, first of all, services is really the biggest part of the story, I think, for Apple through this decade. Uh, I've seen estimates as high as uh, services are reaching $50 billion of uh, profits by 2025. But I look at it in terms of what are the things that Apple can control? And one of them is the uh, terrific technology that they now have with their vertical integration into the iPhone. The iPhone is not going away in the decade of the 2020s. Uh, in fact, if you look at the uh, microprocessor technology that Apple has invested in, uh, some people have estimated that by 2030, the iPhone, and I think it'll still be around as a main part of Apple's business in 2030, uh, that it may be a billion times more powerful than the original iPhone that Steve Jobs introduced. So think about what that means for services, the types of things you'll be able to do. Think about when 5G is fully deployed around the world. So Apple's got a great runway ahead of them. It's the most competent uh, company maybe in the world in terms of its ability to run operations, execute, and it's been, uh, many people have said, well, why isn't it more innovative? Well, it actually is very innovative in the things that are important in in uh, building its ecosystem. I mean, for example, the app library that Apple announced this year, that only makes it you know more easy for people to be able to uh, add more apps and to uh, be able to upgrade apps and things of that sort. And that's the engine of profitability for Apple is you know in the services, uh, particularly the App Store. So I'm very bullish on Apple. I think they'll hit uh, two trillion dollars market cap probably before the end of this year. And I would guess by 2025, we'll be talking about, you know, will Apple hit uh, $2.5 trillion? This is clearly a company that is uh, in for a, a long, long run. No, Mr. Scully, it's an honor to have you. You're a legend. So you just mentioned market cap. To Dan's earlier point, uh, here's a company that's added a trillion dollars. And I say that it's remarkable. But since the March low, $300 billion or so in the last seven or eight trading days, my question to you is, is the market underestimating the potential for Apple to be caught up in these continuing, ongoing, and escalating U.S.-China uh, rhetoric, uh, the back and forth in terms of what's going on between these two countries? Can the Chinese escalate, and could Apple uh, find themselves in the crosshairs? Well, of course they could escalate. I mean, you know, uh, remember, we're in an election year. We have uh, three months to go until the election. So I think you have to discount a lot of the things that are being said uh, until we get past the election. Uh, and Apple's not going away before the, you know, before the election. So uh, I look at Apple not in terms of uh, how does it uh, you know, look today. Uh, I'm holding Apple. I'm not uh, selling Apple. If anything, we've been buying Apple over the years, not uh, selling. But I believe that uh, we'll have a much clearer picture, regardless of who wins or loses the election, as to what the risks are with China. Uh, it would be really a stupid thing for either China or the United States to uh, start to uh, try to have a war with uh, their, their major companies like Tencent and Alibaba and Apple uh, and, and others. It doesn't make any sense to me. And, and I think uh, cooler minds will um, you know, come to their senses. But let's get past the election. All right. John, we hope to speak to you soon. John Scully, always great to, to hear your thoughts.
former president of Apple. Um, is there a risk? And, you know, you, you think about this and, and you, right now we're saying, oh, it's just Fortnite. It could be Riot. Spotify came out already with a statement in support of Epic Games. Um, Tim, is there a risk that that major apps band together and say, you know what, enough of this. And it is like that ad that parodied that 1980s Mac commercial that Apple put together where you got all these different, I mean, if we play that again, all these different players in this eventually throwing that, yeah. that an- the anvil, the hammer, at the screen. Yeah, I, and, and, and I, I think there's, there's an argument, though, and I think this is where Dan was also mm-hmm. referencing, where, where are they going to play these games? And, and, and ultimately, um, that's one of the big issues. So the, the dominance of the handset, of the installed base, the dominance of the iOS system um, is something that needs to be addressed. But again, I, I do agree. And, and I think when you talk about uh, Riot Games and, 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 and Activism Blizzard, I mean, these are all, all things that Tencent has a major stake in, in addition to Fortnite. So um, they, they are certainly, in terms of the gaming community, um, they could be one of the strongest players. Um, very interesting also what Mr. Scully referenced is this whole dynamic of uh, are mega cap tech companies like Apple better off or worse off or, or, or are they indifferent as to who the next president of the United States is? I think we have to be really careful to expect a, a change in administration changing the tone. Maybe, maybe the, the style will be different, mm-hmm. but this is a very bipartisan issue in Washington. And in fact, uh, I would argue that there are Democrats that have made this a bigger agenda item for them than even Republicans. So uh, I, if, if investors are looking at mega cap tech as an investment where on the days you get the sense that maybe you know Biden's ahead in the polls so it's safe to buy mega cap tech again because the China war will thaw, I think you have to be careful about that theory. All right, let's stick to the tech space here. We've got an earnings alert on applied material. Shares of the chip maker rallying 2% off its earnings results. Let's get to Bertha Coombs with the details. Hey, Bertha. Hey, Melissa, blowout quarter for AMAT. They reported a dollar six cents a share. Uh, that's 10 cents better than the analyst estimates. And $4, $4.4 billion in revenues is more than a quarter billion dollars above. That was driven by better than expected semiconductor systems and display sales. Applied Material is also raising its fourth quarter outlook well above analyst estimates. CEO Gary Dickerson says the chip equipment maker has gotten back to pre-COVID levels of productivity. On the call, he noted that demand from the industrial and automakers remains weak, but the pandemic is driving and accelerating what he calls, quote, a major technology inflection for semi-equipment due to working from home, online retail fueling more investment and uh, data centers and communications infrastructure. And he believes current spending levels will be sustained or higher in 2021. They also updated as well on their uh, acquisition of uh, Cocosai. That's a $2.2 billion deal that they did a year ago. They're buying that memory maker from uh, KKR. So far, they say they've got five of six approvals and they hope to close it soon, but they have not given an end date. Again, that deal uh, happened like 13 months ago. So that's still hanging in the air. But overall, they say that demand continues to be strong, both for memory and for uh, logic sales. All right. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs with the latest on AMAT. Uh, Bono, and what do you make of this quarter, especially with the SMH, the ETF that tracks the semi-space, just a few bucks off of 52-week highs? Um, Good question. So, you know, as she mentioned, they beat on top and bottom line. And I think that's, that's important, definitely something to take into consideration. But what I think we're seeing in this space and others is what guidance looks like. And all things, all, all arrows are pointing upward there in terms of demand 
and in terms of margin. Um, a couple of things that I'll, that I'll note, uh, I think they have about $5 billion of cash. They've been in a strong uptrend. Um, and that, that, dollar, that dollar five or dollar six number definitely came in stronger than the 95 or 96 cent um, figure that was expected. So I think, for, I think strong earning, quarterly earnings, in addition to guidance um, and, and showing robust strength through this COVID situation is really a reason to continue to ride this trend higher. All right, up 2% right now in the after hours. While some of tech's most popular names have soared, others have been left in the dust. And that's especially true of the old guard of tech names like Intel, Micron, and Cisco getting hit hard. So, Dan, you actually pointed this out. This is sort of the, you know, the old name tech stories. They're not doing so hot, especially as we witness them report earnings and then the after hours action. Yeah, so just kind of some of these legacy names. I mean, obviously, Intel was pretty company specific, but I think some of the things that they had to say fly a little bit in the face of what AMAT is saying about CapEx um, spending going forward. I look at AMAT and I can point right to Western Digital's disappointing report um, last week as far as memories are, uh, is concerned. And then there's Micron, you know, reported last month, just couldn't get going. The stock broke down today on a broker downgrade, talking about weak demand um, for memory right there. So you put Put that all together with Cisco's really disappointing quarter. I mean, it was a mess. And, and I know that Tim was chatting about this a little bit. That is not what you want to hear about enterprise spending when you're seeing so much of technology just having their multiples expanded based on a lot of the sort of rhetoric that you think should be benefiting a company like Cisco right now. Um, so it is a, a winner take all. And it seems like these legacy tech names, the cheaper they are, the worse that they act right now. Yeah, and we saw the impact across Dell, Hewlett-Packard Enterprises, all those sor same sorts of names in today's session, Guy. Yeah, and I think it was Deutsche Bank, to Dan's point, that downgraded a f not only Micron but a few other names. And you know, the concern for many years about Micron was how it was, could potentially become commoditized and how cyclical the company was. They seemed to sort of push through that uh, a couple of years ago, but now it seems to be right back into that commoditized uh, problem where the market gets really concerned. And the, the, despite the fact that other names in the space have been on fire, this can't get out of its own way. So it really comes down to this. You know, there'll be people that play Micron for the catch-up trade. But in this environment we find ourselves in, that really hasn't worked. The winners continue to outperform and the losers get punished. And my sense is that's going to continue with Micron. Once upon a time, Cisco Systems used to be viewed as the bellwether in technology. You would pour over the earnings report to see how the tech sector would trade afterwards. Today, Tim, what is that bellwether in your, your view? Yeah, we were waiting for John Chambers' every word. And, and if you listen to Chuck Robbins' every word yesterday, he, he was talking about the delay in, in, in purchases and essentially uh, pushing down uh, to you know, the consumer stack and, and where they're actually even more concerned when you look at the entirety of the smaller businesses and, and even you know, more limited resources. I, it's, it's really fascinating to think about the conversation we're also having with Apple um, versus these two companies, Intel and Cisco, when you think about how Apple has slowly transformed itself into a recurring revenue stream company. Mm -hmm. uh, the story with, with Cisco is certainly where it's trying to. It's trying to get into software. It's trying to get into security. It is doing that. Uh, but they haven't rotated as fast. And it's pretty clear. Uh, and in fact, you know, if you think about Intel and the ARM chip 
and, and the issues there with x86. And, and, you know, there's a lot of different tentacles here. But Intel and Cisco are losing right now. Uh, and they are losing in the cutting edge and the leading edge technology. Or they haven't transformed their business into recurring revenue streams. And there's still hardware plays in Cisco's. Uh, at least this is how the market treats it yesterday when you get the sense that, uh, yes, there is less money to be spent. And it's probably not going to hardware right now. All right. Coming up, we've got our eyes on Baidu after the company's latest earnings report. We'll dive into the numbers and later. Apple's doing it. Tesla's doing it. So who's next? We'll take a look at some of the high price tag stocks and might be heading to Splitsville. Stay tuned. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got another earnings alert. Shares of Baidu trading at after-hour session lows. Dom Chu's got the latest. Dom. All right, so what we have... Right now, Melissa, what some folks call the Google of China, I guess is the best way to say it. Those U.S. listed shares of Baidu, as we just pointed out to you, down nearly 7 percent right now, almost 1.2 million shares of aftermarket volume. Now, this is after reported profits of 14.73 yuan per share versus consensus estimates for 9.6 yuan. Now, revenue is also better, 26.03 billion versus the 25.71 billion estimate. CEO Robin Lee said in the release that Baidu's business is steadily rebounding as COVID-19 becomes more manageable in China. Those were his words. It also provided some guidance for the current quarter as well, where it estimates that revenue growth will come in anywhere from down around 6% to growth of 2% on a year-over-year basis, adding that, quote, the COVID-19 situation in China is evolving and business visibility is very limited. Also, that the forecast, quote, reflects Baidu's current and preliminary view, which is subject to substantial uncertainty. Perhaps no surprise there. Now, the earnings conference call is slated to take place later on this evening, 9.15 p.m. Eastern time, where it may not be, folks, out of the realm of reason to hear some questions, perhaps, about the growing tensions between the U.S. and China, specifically on the big tech front and what businesses could look like in the coming months and quarters, Melissa. A lot of big deal, of course, China front and center for many U.S. investors right now. Back over to you. All right. Thank you, Dom. And also check out shares, by the way, of Chinese video company iQiyi sinking double digits on the back of its results. Uh, Tim, what do you think? Well, I, I think if, if you've been following Baidu, this has been a two to three year story of a, a downfall and a demise of, of what was, you know, really the, yes, the China, the Google of China, and it's really not uh, anymore. In fact, I think it's given up ground uh, to Tencent and, and even to some of the, the Alibaba properties. And in fact, if you look at their year-over-year growth, they're down 8% in terms of their core business. They have a number of other verticals, including online education, and, and uh, they're just, they're, they're not executing. And, and I think this is ultimately a case where uh, this is not even about a trade war stock. This is about a company that needs to get its, get its bearings. All right, coming up, take a look at the spike in this security. No, it's not Kodak. But this surge holds its own cautionary tale. We'll find out what happened and why it should make you pay a little more attention to what is in your portfolio. And later, we wrap up Weed Week here on Fast Money with the CEO of One Pot Company that just posted record revenue. We'll dive into the numbers, find out what's next. Fast Money's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? 
Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. An ETN explosion rocking one of Credit Suisse's leveraged funds. The firm is liquidating its Velocity shares three times inverse natural gas fund after some very unnatural trading in the over-the-counter market. Last week, DGAZF was trading at $400 a share. This week, it spiked as high as $24,000 a share. Huge premium to its net asset value. So let's drill down with what happened here with Mike Aikens, founding partner of ETF Action. Mike, great to have you with us to explain this all. I mean, it seems like um, the weird activity in, in this particular issue, this ETN, exchange-traded note, really happened um, starting last month when, the, when Credit Suisse announced that it was delisting this, right? And Correct. then it wasn't going to issue more shares at that point. Correct. So really to understand what occurred, I think we have to review the kind of the timeline of events. And to that extent, um, the first thing we have to realize is that DGAS delisted on July 12th um, and last month. And in, when, in doing that, basically lost all liquidity. So they made the decision, Credit Suisse did, for whatever reason, and we can have a discussion about that, to allow the ETN to no longer be listed on New York Stock Exchange ARCA, go to the over-the-counter market, and as a result, it lost all liquidity. It went from trading over 100,000 shares a day to just a few hundred shares a day. And then really, um, as a thank you very little to the exist to the remaining shareholders, um, Credit Suisse suspended all future creations. And as a result, it took away the major ARB um, mechanism that allows exchange-traded vehicles to track their underlying reference benchmark or index. On top of that, we know that there was a large amount of short interest in this um, in this in DGAS going into this event. And we know this, the, the numbers are sketchy, but upwards of $15 million at the end of July was short DGAS. And the irony here is that technically the DGAS short sellers had the story right. Um, natural gas has um, gone up and has gone up significantly. And as a result, the reference benchmark for DGAS has gone down significantly. It went from over $300 down to just over $100 in value. So what should be a massive profit turned into basically a nightmare situation for these short sellers because the price disconnected from the underlying and went up, um, you know, as you, just, as you just showed, up to $24,000. And these short sellers were setting in a really crazy situation. Um, at this point, really, that's where the speculation begins. Um, why did it disconnect so badly? Right. Um, you know, you could go as simple as saying that um, it's trading on an inefficient exchange and you really shouldn't be trading over the counter, especially in a vehicle like this, um, to something more sinister. And, and 
was somebody trying to manipulate the price, knowing that there was a large number of short sellers out there. And really, that brings us to the situation of where we're at today. Right. Could this happen again? Oh, absolutely. On the delisted side, I think what's really important to bring up is there's actually 57 ETNs. We've had an enormous number of uh, ETNs delisted this year, and there's 57 currently. It's not just Credit Suisse products. Deutsche Bank has some. Barclays has some. Um, ETNs that are trading on the over-the-counter market, and any of those vehicles could, um, at any point in time, have a significant decoupling to their underlying um, reference benchmark and have a similar situation occur. Hey, it's Tim Seymour. Thanks for joining. I, I guess my question is, is, do you see these as more commonplace around commodities? And again, is there it, this isn't what happened with the oil fund earlier in the year, but uh, we have seen this in energy and oil and gas ETNs in the past. And is there a message here for investors about ETNs? Absolutely. Um, first thing is it's ETN for a reason, exchange traded note. It's simply an unsecured debt obligation to that um, issuing bank. And also with an ETN, it's a 33-act vehicle. Um, uh, exchange traded fund is regulated under the 40-act. And as a result, it comes with a lot more um, safe, safety guards um, ref with respect to the shareholder. So the ETN has a lot more event uh, vehicles associated with it. And to that event, when you see something that's three times levered, they'll have an acceleration option or something if the market goes crazy, like we saw earlier in the year wow. um, with a number of oil products or VIX products, and they can just accelerate and um, close the product. Something that bothers me much more than the ETN vehicle itself is this idea of delisting the ETN. Mm -hmm. um, they could choose, like they did last night with DGAS, to accelerate the event and therefore, instead of delisting, return the money back to the shareholders at the underlying reference benchmark. And it's really difficult to understand why you would delist other than to continue to capture your, your fees. Right. Wow. Mike, thanks so much for joining us uh, and explaining this complicated trade. Mike Akins. Um, Guy, you know, we don't often talk about these vehicles because they are very dangerous. But in light of, of the onslaught of retail investors entering the market right now, we thought this was very important because an issue like this might catch your eye. You know, you see huge percentage gains and, and you know, the Robin Hood crowd, somebody who's new to the markets might think, hey, there's momentum there. But it's really, really dangerous. Of course it is. And we try to point it out. And, you know, whether people choose to listen or not, it's up to the individual. But you do notice that this seems to be happening uh, with more regularity over the last few months. And you can attribute it to whatever you want, but it's extraordinarily dangerous. And I think it, this speaks to a much larger problem in that for a lot of people. And listen, do you think I understand what this note was comprised of, this three-time levered note? Uh, no. I understand the difference between an ETN and an ETF. And obviously, the discrepancy can lead to these types of moves with the note that just tracks the underlying as opposed to the ETF, which owns the underlying equities. With that said, you really have to know what you're getting yourself into. And this is not as much as people like to think this is just a huge casino and things only go higher. A lot of people are learning the hard way that the way down is a lot worse than the way up. And in this case, the way up hurt a lot of people as well. Yep. Coming up, it's been a rough ride for casino stocks, but there is one name cashing in today. We'll take a look at the bull case for Penn National. Plus, splits happen. So what does that mean for the options on the stocks? We'll dive into the details when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. A bad hand for casino stocks. National gaming revenue going basically bust in the second quarter. Contessa Brewer's got all the details. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Melissa. Yeah, the nation's casinos were closed for much of the quarter, so it really should come as no surprise that the results are dismal. The Q2 release from the American Gaming Association shows revenue dropped 79% year over year. Slots, table games, sports betting all plummeted. Hey, but look at iGaming. iGaming wasn't closed. That's the online casino games, up more than 250%. And by the way, it's only offered in some way, shape, or form in six states. But states looking for new streams of tax revenue may be more inclined to consider it now. And with states now reporting July gross gaming revenue, we have to say things are looking up. Ohio broke its record for highest monthly GGR ever, 12% higher than last July, even with capacity restrictions in place. And its daily gross gaming revenue is up 19.2%. South Dakota's get a load of this. Daily GGR up almost 43%. And Indiana's has risen 7%. Take a look at New Jersey's sports books, raking in 25% more in bets this July than last year. And the industries cut costs in ways that really have improved margins dramatically. Regionals more than destination casinos like Las Vegas. We have learned from the AGA, as well as the companies themselves, that the players right now are younger and they're spending more per visit. That may not last as other entertainment options come back online. Movie theaters, concerts, in-person sports. And some of this spend may have been fueled by government stimulus and those padded unemployment checks. But the industry is betting it can convert some of those younger, higher spending players into loyalty members for the long haul. Melissa. All right. Thank you, Contessa. And speaking of those casino stocks, sure. some big calls out today on two names. Goldman Sachs initiating Penn National Gaming with a buy rating. Analysts saying Penn sits at a cross-section of a rapidly rebounding regional casino space. And J.P. Morgan saying Caesars is a high-risk, high-reward stock, calling for 35% upside. So do you roll the dice here, Bonowin, Ison? Uh, short answer is no. I would rather not. Um, I mean, listen, I, I understand the bull case here, right? It's really, I, it's really sports and online gaming. I, I mean, I understand that they did a wonderful job of laying that out. But if you're betting on these, you are betting on the consumer. You're betting that the economy is going to continue being what it has been historically, which is being driven by debt-driven debt consumer spending. But if you're looking at unemployment, if you're looking at consumer confidence, if you're looking at the grappling, the back and forth that we're seeing in terms of what stimulus and unemployment benefits are going to look like. And you also overlay that with the fact that banks, all of them across the board, have raised their reserves for bad, for bad debts. Where is this going to continue to come from? Uh, so the short answer is no. I mean, granted, they outlay that this is a high-risk, high-reward bet. They're looking out to December 2021. If you want to buy it, stick it in your drawer and not look at it. I can understand it. But it's a speculative play, and I think you, the opportunity cost is high. There's other places to, to deploy capital. Are they in your drawer, Guy? Very few things in my drawer. My, remember Haynes <laughs> Brands we talked about with Carter Braxton Worth? Sure, I do. Got a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> Too I much information. In I actually <laughs> Too much information. <laughs> oh, it is? I, I oh, are we on TV now? I don't need to know that. <laughs> I, 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 sorry. sorry about that. No, listen, you know, be icebreaker, breaking it down, man. I, I'm so <laughs> with them on this one. And, and it, it goes right back to the Windicator, if you remember. You know, we goof around, but this actually worked. You know, when this stock traded up to 109, when before the broader market really got on its giddy up, 
We talked about that being a tell. And then as it traded back down to 70, we said, look, this is your line in the sand. Go back and look where it held for about a month, month and a half. It was at $70 level. Get out of this stock win once it prints 90. I think it's going to get there. But $90 is your exit level. And I think you'll be able to buy it cheaper. So I'm in the B-Ice camp. Dan. Yeah, DraftKings to me is kind of interesting. Reports tomorrow morning. Our main man, the General Mills, pitched this one. I think a few a uh, few weeks ago. Um, you know, listen, this report's going to be really interesting. It's going to give us a sense of just how focused their guidance is on football coming back in the for, uh, fall. Daily fantasy is obviously important, and then um, just kind of sports gambling in general. The options market is implying about a nine percent move in either direction. If this stock is down, um, I think you buy it for a trade into the fall as investors start looking past some of these, um, you know, kind of sports closures. All right, let's turn from casinos to cannabis. As you know, it is Weed Week here on the show, and we've been bringing on some of the industry's top experts and top execs to lay out the opportunities lighting up the space. Today, we are taking a look at Green Thumb, which reported better than expected earnings yesterday after the bell. CEO Bruce Kovler joins us now to close out our special Weed Week series. Uh, ben, great to see you again. Welcome. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me back. Uh, the analysts were very enthusiastic about uh, the earnings report. Um, one of the highlights of the report, Ben, was the retail revenues up 15.2% quarter-on-quarter, mainly on six new store openings, um, two in Illinois, which just kicked off adult use in January. I'm wondering, how do you think about uh, store openings, especially in this sort of d- dicey economic environment right now? Uh, for sure. Uh, something the team spends a lot of time on, but But stepping back, this is early innings for U.S. cannabis, and the U.S. consumer is interested in this product. So there is a lot of demand, particularly east of the Mississippi. And so we're fortunate to be able to open up stores in Illinois, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, New Jersey, et cetera, as the U.S. consumer's demand is met for cannabis. Is there a number in mind, X number of stores by the end of of the year? Oh, well, we have 48 stores today. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard to give precise guidance with COVID and a lot of inspections and things, but we continue to ramp. We continue to look for sites. Construction is ongoing, and we will continue to open stores. Your margins were also strong, 53.2% uh, gross margin. Some analysts are saying that there's possibly incremental margin upside to the story here. What do you see as a primary driver of margin expansion at this point? Is it more expansion into the, uh, the higher margin geographies? Um, is it expanding into the areas where you have a great production capacity? Yeah, core to our thesis is this is a branded consumer product. And as we scale production, large-scale production of consumer products, making more branded products like Dog Walkers, Bebo, Incredibles, Rhythm, we can drive down the marginal cost and drive up uh, the gross margin uh, to your question. So, again, early innings. Look at Illinois. The run rate is now at a record high of $1 billion on an annual basis. And we think there's much, much more upside to come. And that doesn't take into account states like Pennsylvania or New Jersey, Connecticut, et cetera. Hey, Ben, it's Tim. Thanks for coming on. And again, right states at the right time seems to have been uh, how GTI has done this. Uh, Your profitability is also what separates you from many and not most of the players in, in the industry. How should investors who've been, you know, many have been burned, many have been disappointed by investing in cannabis stocks. How should they value your company? And in other words, what is the most important valuation metric? I think ultimately it's free cash flow, but I'd love to hear from you what investors should be following as they look at Green Thumb. That's a great question. Thanks, Tim. Uh, You know, really, you want to partner alongside management that's aligned with shareholders whose mission it is to drive long-term shareholder value, and that's top and bottom line growth. 
Uh, the industry's evolved in terms of how investors are viewing valuation from licenses to revenue to EBITDA to now what you said of free cash flow generation, uh, which Green Thumb is doing. We are profitable generating free cash. I think you need to look at the size of the opportunity. This is very early. Yep. There are many multi-billion dollar markets being opened across the country and states, and Green Thumb is well positioned for those. So if you look at the market size opportunity, if you look at multiple of EBITDA, if you look at free cash flow generation or growth, any way you slice and dice it, U.S. cannabis is cheap. Ben, great to speak with you. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you <laughs> Thanks, soon. Melissa. Thanks, everyone. Ben Kovler, Green Thumb Industries. Um, Tim, you were excited about this earnings report. You know, it's, it's amazing how the conversation has changed from a couple of years ago when cannabis is sort of the speculative play. And now we're talking about, comp- we're talking about free cash flow in margins with these companies. Yeah, and, and again, full disclosure, I'm long GTI, uh, and and I, I think you know you brought up also just the the sales growth. I mean, same store sales in stores that are open more than 12 months up 75 percent. So the ticket sizes are higher. Like, there's no question this is early stage, and there's no question we don't really know uh, where demand is, but it's only moving in one direction. And and the the excitement that was around the sector um, was a little bit clouded by the realities of capital markets. But um, there are companies that are executing here, and GTI is one of them. All right, coming up. Our very own Jim Cramer has his eye on 10 more stocks that could gain from a stock split. The traders reveal which names they think could follow in Apple and Tesla's footsteps. And speaking of Cramer, do not miss his interview with the CEO of PayPal. That is tonight, Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Meantime, much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Apple and Tesla, both surging double digits since announcing stock splits. The breakout performance has Mad Mad Money's Jim Cramer thinking about 10 other big names that could benefit from a stock split of their own. That includes tech titans like Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Facebook, as well as Chipotle, Home Depot, and more. So which of these names looks like a best bet for a stock split? Guy, what do you say? I don't think CMG needs to be a $1,200 stock, but the company's been a monster. I understand what JC is saying here, but given the parameters that you just laid in front of us, from those names, it would be CMG. Split six for one would make a lot of sense. It, it sounds like you, you feel like you're being constrained by me offering you some choices. So do you have do I, something do, off do menu I look, that you want to well, choose? Okay, so okay, speak. okay. You want to pl- uh, Yeah, you know what? I do feel constrained. <laughs> okay. Because where my head was at, I thought Restoration Hardware would be a natural one to split. So I was, I was going off the reservation that. and going to RH. All right. So there you go. Tim, what do you say? Yeah, he surprised me with that. I, but I do think this, the CMG is a kind of a cult stock, and they're the ones that benefit the most. Let's be clear. We've seen that. Uh, over the last couple of days. But Amazon, I mean, how about a 40 to one split? Um, get that stock around 80 bucks or so. And I, I think you'd actually see a major move again in the context of the fundamentals have nothing to do with this. Uh, and this is really more about, uh, you know, essentially some of the momentum in these stocks. Yeah. Well, sticking with stock splits, we know what happens to a stock after a split. But what about options on a stock? So Bonneman, um, why don't you uh, walk us through some options action 101 here? I'd love to. Thanks, Melissa. So a couple of things to keep in mind in terms of uh, options, right? There's going to be three main things that you need to look out for, and those are going to be M&A, those are going to be certain types of dividends, and stock splits. So we're going to focus on the last one. Um, Again, we've heard ad nauseum. This is a non-economic event. No value should be created or eroded in this situation. And the last thing is your, your North Star essentially here is going to be your conversion ratio or your split ratio. So the first thing that you're going to want to look at is the options contracts, right? So let's take 
a $1,500 stock that everyone knows very well, for example. Are you going to have a situation where each option already in existence gives you um, access to or leverage to 100 shares? In a five-to-one split, that's going to give you access to now 500 shares. In addition to that, you're going to then go to the strike price. And that strike price is going to be divided by that conversion ratio. So 1,500 divided by five is going to get you to 300. So just think of it as an equation. Like you sh- the, the amount of premium or notional invested should not change because of this non-economic event. And that's really it in a nutshell. Nothing to be scared of. All right. Um, Dan, does this allow you to manage your positions a little bit more easily for less money, maybe? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, usually, you know, when you see stock splits of, a, let's say, you know, an Apple that's trading up where it is, it should be vol dampening, meaning the option premium should come in a bit because the higher price stock, the wider the spreads are and the more volatile the stock can trade. But, um, you know, B-Ice, he just, uh, he just nailed that thing. I mean, broke it down like that. I just think that generally you're going to see option premiums, though, lower when you have a five for one split or something like that from a high dollar volatile stock. <laughs> Guy, you're so proud of yourself because you thought of Bonowin's nickname. You're so proud of yourself. You're well, chuckling to yourself. Fantastic. You're patting B-I yourself Spraker. on the back. No, it's no. I am patting myself. It's a great nickname. He, I'm telling you something. B Icebreaker is going to stick. I might just call him Breaker from now on. I think that's bad. I think Breaker <laughs> is pretty, good. pretty cool. Yeah. All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, final trades. Yeah, another one of those stock splits that Jim has brought forward would be Home Depot, uh, which I think based upon fundamentals would would certainly have merit and maybe get a little tailwind from the split. Hmm. Dan, Nathan. Yeah, so I mentioned DraftKings reporting tomorrow morning. If you see this stock down towards 30, the uptrend from the March lows, I think it's a buy into September. Bonowin, otherwise known as B-Ice or maybe Breaker. (laughs) Up to you, Bonowin. (laughs) Uh, Tim makes some great points about the cannabis space. Um, I personally am not well-versed enough to pick a winner. I've been playing it personally through the MJ ETF. Guy Adami. Breaker, you don't have to curry favor with Tim Seymour, number one. Number two, uh, you see what's making an all-time eye here there, Melms? You might want to take a look at you know that Just Do It company, the Nike. Mm. Believe it or not, that's on the verge, I believe, if it didn't today, making an all-time high, breaking through that previous double top. NKE. Back to you, Melissa Lee. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.